Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back for part two. Or is, is this part two, or does it kind of stand alone? Uh, to a large extent, I think this one stands alone. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, well, last time, if you were with us in the last episode, we were exploring uh, what we were sort of calling the lost daughters of Aten, the, the planets that once were thought to exist somewhere in the solar system, whether in ancient times or in recent centuries, but we later found out probably never existed or definitely never existed mm-hmm. in some cases. So uh, examples we talked about included Antikathon and the Central Fire. What was the deal with that? Oh, it, well, you just have to go back and listen to the episode. But it, yeah, this complex notion where um, the sun is not the center of the universe. The earth is not the center of the universe. Uh, but something called the Central Fire is at the center. Yeah. And earth is actually closer to the Central Fire uh, than the sun. So it's you know this sort of complex uh, uh, model of the cosmos based on uh, you know the best obs- observational data of the day of like you know ancient times, ancient Greece, yeah. yeah, combined with certain religious and mythological ideas, yeah, a Pythagorean cosmology, right. sort of. Uh, but then also we talked about the scientific uh, thinking that led to the belief in such a thing as the planet Vulcan, a planet believed to be inside the orbit of Mercury, super close to the sun, as was proposed by uh, Urban Le Verrier. And of course, we also talked about uh, Phaeton, the the Phaeton or Phaeton, the, the the best subject of a Renaissance painting of all time. Yes, but uh, for the purposes of main purposes of our discussion, the the idea that that they thought well the asteroid belt maybe used to be a planet, and maybe this is this is what we would call that planet if it were still whole. Exactly right. So today we wanted to carry this discussion forward to talk about other ideas about planets that are thought to maybe exist somewhere in the solar system but haven't yet been confirmed. In the last episode, all the planets that we talked about, we're we're pretty sure now, have never existed at any time. I mean, with two of them, we're quite sure. Right. But there are still questions. For example, there has long been a question about what lies at the furthest reaches. We, we talked about, you know, what happens when you go down as far as you can into the solar system. Like the sun is this pit, this well, mm-hmm. where you go all the way down. Are there things that are hard to see because they're so close to the sun? When you think about the opposite end, could there be things that are hard for us to see because they're so far? And, of course, I, we have to realize how how um, confusing this may seem at first because it's easy to think uh, that we have our solar system pretty much figured out at this point, right? Yeah. I mean, most if you're listening to this, you probably grew up memorizing the planets, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Uranus, Neptune. And then there's the whole issue of Pluto. And some right. of us get a little bent out of shape, right? When, when someone tells us actually Pluto isn't a full-fledged planet, it's more of a dwarf planet, uh, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we maybe don't roll with change all that well. But it's easy to think, okay, but that's it, right? There's nothing new to discover in the solar system because, meanwhile, we are continually spotting new exoplanets that are light years upon light years away, like far distant reaches of the observable universe. So if we're figuring that out, then surely we've got everything squared away in our immediate neighborhood. Yeah, it only makes sense 
sense that that's the way it should go, right? Why are we seeing exoplanets when there's still a question of whether there could be a planet in our own solar system we don't know about? And it, unfortunately, that's just a side effect of the different ways we have of detecting things. It actually may be much easier to detect the presence of a planet orbiting a distant star because you can definitely see that star and you can tell by certain things. You can tell by uh, if the star wobbles, if there are other gravitational influences on that star. You can tell by the tr what's known as the transit method if something is passing in front of the star mm -hmm. from our perspective and causing it to dim. Yeah, I, I think I was thinking about it this way. Um, I was thinking of beach houses. Uh -huh. Imagine you're staying in one beach house, you know, sizable beach house, and they tend to be, you know, with lots of lots of beds for uh, multiple families or groups to stay uh, in at the same time. So you're in one beach house, uh -huh. and then you're adjacent to another beach house, and <laughs> you uh, you you gaze out at the other beach house. You see some lights on, and you ask yourself, I wonder if anyone is staying there, and you observe it until you find definite signs that there is an individual in that house. And then, then maybe you can count how many individuals are in that house. But then if you ask the same question about your own beach house, well, then you can, there are ways to try and figure that out. But, uh, but not the same But not ways. the same ways, right? You might do a bit of listening. You might do a bit of roaming around, of, uh, of rattling the curiously locked doors that go who knows where. That's a really good analogy. I like that a lot. And so by running around within our own house, mm -hmm. we have discovered uh, by, say, the, the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, we had discovered a lot of stuff. We discovered eight planets at, at that point. The first six planets, uh, Mercury, Venus, of course, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn have been known about since ancient times. Mm -hmm. you know, ancient astronomers with the naked eye could see them in the night sky and charted their movements and all that. Then in 1781, you had uh, Uranus or Uranus. We still have to decide which one we truly prefer. Mm -hmm. uh, Uranus was found by Sir William Herschel with a telescope. He wanted to name it after King George, and fortunately that didn't happen. Uh, then Le Verrier, the, uh, the French astronomer, predicted the placement of Neptune by the wobble in Uranus. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he said, I predict there's another planet here and you can find it. And then they went and looked for it and they did find it. And that was in the 1840s. So we're up to seven planets at this point by the 1840s. By the way, as long as we're snickering at, uh, at the, 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 the planetary name Uranus, uh, I, I do want to throw in to call back to an older episode that I hope that one day someone writes a science fiction tale in which a starship is headed toward Uranus and it's called the Gaia Bolga. That would be a, a great ship title there. That is brilliant. That is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Wait a minute. I think I said – did I say a minute ago that Neptune was the seventh planet? I feel like I've got that ringing in my head for some reason. If I said that, that's entirely wrong. Neptune is the eighth planet obviously. Uh, so apologies if I misspoke. If not, this is just a maybe something we can edit out. Sorry, I had to say that before I forgot. But yes, the guy Bulga. <laughs> that, that should be the ship to Uranus. Yeah. Absolutely. Much more evocative and, and resonant than Voyager 2 or yes. whatever, whatever they've previously used. But l let's pull it back and meet a guy. You ready to meet a guy, a mustachioed gentleman? Yes. Okay, so it is time to meet a fellow by the name of Percival Lowell. I'm, I think we visited this guy on the podcast before. That mustache does look familiar. <laughs> so Percival Lowell 
was born to a wealthy, prominent uh, family in Boston in 1855, the Lowell family. Uh, so he was brother of A. Lawrence Lowell, who was a lawyer who ended up becoming president of Harvard University. And he was also the brother, uh, I didn't realize this until recently, of the poet Amy Lowell, who I guess is considered a modernist poet. She's sometimes called an imagist. Um, but I, I picked out one of her poems because it had an image that seemed maybe a bit relevant to that. To today. Um, the poem is called Balls. I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but she writes, throw the blue ball above the little twigs of the treetops and cast the yellow ball straight at the buzzing stars. All our life is a flinging of colored balls to impossible distances. That's nice. Now, I think the image there is that the, all our life is a flinging of colored balls like we're doing the flinging. But you could also think of it as that everything that human life is is being flung around on a colored ball in the void of space. Yeah, that's, that's the whole human experience just right there on the surface of this weird ball among other weird balls. It's always a weird thing to consider. I mean, I know uh, Sagan pointed that out about like the, the picture of the earth. You oh, know, yeah. When you take a picture of the earth – Everything human there has ever been is in that picture. Yeah, that pale blue dot that contains uh, our beginning and, and, and may well contain our end. But anyway, back to Amy's brother, Percival. So Percival Lowell, I think in his early days, I get the sense he was sort of a man about town, except town was like the whole world and especially <laughs> like the eastern part of Asia. Mm -hmm. he, like, okay. he, he traveled a lot, sort of international flaneur maybe. Um, and he, he traveled through the 1880s and the 1890s and at one point became foreign secretary to the Korean special mission to the United States. But then later in the 1890s, Percival Lowell became more and more fascinated with astronomy, particularly with the planet Mars. And there was something interesting going on in the late 1800s with the planet Mars. There was this Italian astronomer named Giovanni Schiaparelli who had been studying the planet Mars through a telescope. And he perceived what looked to him like a series of lines on the surface of the planet that he in 1877 called canali. Oh, yes. An Italian word meaning channels. But apparently these canali were taken by some English-speaking audiences to be canals, kind of a false cognate inference, as in canals like in Venice, artificial structures made by intelligent tool-using creatures like us. And this idea kind of became a sensation, right? Yeah, this, this had a tremendous effect on, uh, on the way we perceived the planet Mars. I mean, it, its effects are still uh, felt today in the way we think about Mars, despite everything we, we've learned since then. Yeah, like why, how come when we talk about aliens, the go-to is to talk about Martians, especially in the early 20th century? Oh, yes, yeah. It was always Martians. It wasn't Venusians or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, occasionally Venusians would pop up. But it's right. not Santa Claus versus the Venusians. It's Santa Claus <laughs> versus the Martians. <laughs> Yeah, or in War of the Worlds, you know, right. why, why the Martians? Mm -hmm. I mean, the Martian threat. Exactly. So the, the idea of alien canals on Mars really got Percival Lowell's gears cranking, and he decided to turn his attention and his wealth and his resources to astronomy in the 1890s. And in doing this, he founded the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona in oh, yeah. 1894, still mm -hmm. there today. Yeah, and Flagstaff is certainly a great place uh, to gaze at the stars. And just a cool place in general. I like Flagstaff. So Percival Lowell became a passionate defender of the idea that there was or had been intelligent civilization on Mars. And he put this theory forward in a bunch of published writings using observations from the Lowell Observatory to back up his argument. And so I want to quote from his uh, 1916 New York Times obituary with a few abridgments. The author writes, quote, 
The great controversy among astronomers, in which he played a leading part, began in 1907 after his announcement that the observations made by his astronomical station proved that Mars was inhabited. Professor Lowell had put the theory forward tentatively as early as 1895. Many eminent astronomers in this country and Europe accepted his conclusions of 1907 as unassailable. Others were skeptical. Professor Lowell's theory begins with the demonstration that the primary requisites for human life exist on the planet, water, heat, and atmosphere. His positive proof of the existence of human life on Mars <laughs> is the network of lines which mark certain areas of the planet's face, indicating the digging of artificial canals, which would require an intelligence and engineering skill as great or greater than possessed by the inhabitants of this Earth. So I think he's making a few jumps here. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, the main jump, of course, is that is that there are no such canals. Right. And uh, and the more we looked at Mars, and then ultimately, as we began to to send probes to the red planet, mm. uh, it became increasingly clear that there were absolutely no canals. Yeah, when we we got photos of Mars from a probe in, ni in the 1970s, mm -hmm. which showed, yeah, definitely not, nothing there. Right, and, and, uh, and you know, we, we talked about this before on the show, when you're, you know, dealing with early observations, there is a, there, there's more room to see things that are not there, especially if you don't have the ability to really cap, you know, do any photography at all. It's a, it's very observational and then very, uh, and then you, you're very easy to, maybe think you see something or misremember something you've seen or, or or in fact the more you look at it see faint signs of the thing you want to see yeah there's so much interesting stuff in the history of astronomy about things people said they saw during the days of earlier optical telescopes mm -hmm. without modern instruments and, and modern uh, uh, telephotography where like the ashen light. Remember that episode yeah, we did? Absolutely. And, and the planet Vulcan itself, mm -hmm. you know, that wasn't just predicted. Like people said they saw the planet Vulcan up there by the sun during an eclipse. Who knows what they actually saw? But clearly the the process of astronomical observation was – uh, was much cruder back then. But Lowell's, Lowell's argument is kind of funny. So he says astronomers can see white surfaces on the poles of Mars, right? And he says that these are ice caps. And in a way, that he's correct about that. There are ice caps on Mars. But he said they would melt and shrink in summer and then freeze and grow larger again in winter. And so he observed that the uh, Martian spring came and the ice melted. And at that point, the dark lines or the canals would grow darker, quote, even showing straight black lines crisscrossed over the surface and over the surface of the orange ochre areas. Uh, and that he said these dark lines would disappear again in the Martian autumn. And he concluded from this that the darkened areas around the canals were flourishing with plant life bearing leaves and grasses during the summer, which died away again in the winter when the water froze up and became scarce. And from this, he argued that Mars must have been a very parched planet where water is in high demand, which meant that uh, the people who lived there would have had to make very careful use of a highly limited water supply or else, quote, would find themselves at last face to face with the relentlessness of a scarcity of water constantly growing greater till at last they would all die of thirst, either directly or indirectly, for either they themselves would not have water enough to drink or the plants or animals which constituted their diet would perish for lack of of it, an alternative of small choice to them, unless they were conventionally particular as to their mode of death. <laughs> 
So Lowell concluded that they had to build canals on Mars, that only irrigation on a vast scale could prevent the Martians from dying from a lack of water, and thus the proof of the existence of civilization on the surface of Mars. Well, it's a fun argument, and yeah. I, I love the world building of it. If this, you know, if it were just purely science fiction, that would that would be marvelous. Uh, but uh, as we've already touched on, uh, evidence did not uh, support this theory. Yeah, and there were skeptics at the time. We should say it wasn't mm-hmm. like everybody believed this until we had a, a Mars probe like take photos of the surface from up close. Right. Though certainly one of these possibilities is far more exciting than the other. Uh, so, so you can <laughs> right. understand why that one would be the one. The, the idea of canals on Mars would be uh, the idea that would show up in more headlines and would and would capture the collective imagination. Right. Uh, and and Lowell's career of influential, controversial, and sometimes incorrect observations and hypotheses did not end there. There was an interesting thing I came across where Lowell also believed that once, while observing the planet Venus, he saw quote spokes radiating from a hub within the planet Venus. Uh, But in a 2003 paper by Sheehan and Dobbins, uh, the authors argued that what actually probably happened here is that because of the way he manipulated the telescope to look at Venus, he had accidentally converted it into a crude ophthalmoscope, which would have been showing him images of the blood vessels within his own eyeball. Oh, my goodness. And you included an image in in our notes here uh, for me to look at here. And, And it does line up rather well with the arteries of the eye. Yeah, Uh, but it doesn't stop there either. So Lowell was also in the planet-predicting business. And we'll discuss his planet predictions when we get back from a break. All right, we're back. So thus far we've talked about uh, Lowell's thoughts concerning – Mars, a known planet, but now we're going to get into the unknown. We're getting into into the uh, the study and the prediction of of, uh, of of hypothetical planets. Yeah, and remember how the eighth planet Neptune had been discovered. Again, uh, Leverrier looked at the orbit of uh, of Uranus and said, "Okay, by the way it's moving, we can tell something is influencing it. It's not moving based on what our predictions should be. So, what if we posit another?" Uh, another object out there of a certain mass in a certain position, then we could explain why Uranus moves the way it does. And so he posited Neptune and it turned out Neptune was there. He was correct. And so this is a a fantastically useful and successful prediction based on the laws of physics. So in the early years of the 20th century, after studying the orbits of the outer gas giants like Uranus and Neptune, Lowell tried to do the same thing. He concluded that there was another planet yet to be be found based on those orbits. Something out there is messing with Uranus and Neptune. And yet again, like with the correct prediction of Neptune and the incorrect prediction of Vulcan by Leverrier, this was on that basis, on the basis of inferred gravitational influences on the orbits of these known objects. So in 1905 or 1906, Percival Lowell initiated a massive hunt for this ghost planet. Uh, The project was initially called the Invariable Plane Search, and the ghost planet was called Planet X. And this project went on for many years. It proceeded in stops and starts throughout several phases, even after Percival Lowell himself actually passed away in 1916. So Percival Lowell never got to see how this project turned out, though he wrote books about uh, – he wrote a book called, I think, like uh, A Memoir of the Trans-Neptunian Planet. But on February 18, 1930, 14 years after Lowell's death, an astronomer at Lowell Observatory named Clyde Tombow – actually did discover a massive object beyond Neptune with the help of the uh, with the help of a loaned sum of money that I think they used to buy new instruments from Percival Lowell's brother who had been the the head of Harvard 
and this object was Pluto, though Pluto was not nearly as massive as the planet that Lowell had predicted out there. And later, actually turned out more accurate measurements of the orbit and mass of Neptune, such as by the Voyager 2 mission, uh, basically obviated the need for a planet X to explain our observations. So you, you, actually looking at Uranus and Neptune, there was no need to, to, to infer a planet X. So it seems there's just no planet out there, right? And now we can conclude there's no need to explain anything. It's probably, there's probably nothing. I mean, we have Pluto, mm-hmm. to be sure. And, uh, and, and again, like we discussed earlier, you can go back and forth on exactly how we should classify Pluto. But here's the thing. There's no question that there are other objects in our solar system beyond Pluto. Pluto is not the, the stop sign for our solar system. There, there's plenty of, of other objects out there. Yeah, the solar system kind of has a shell of icy debris floating around it. Yeah, and so it's not like you you would get to Pluto and there would essentially be a sign saying like last stop till Alpha Centauri. Uh, no, there there's the possibility for other other things, and we know for a fact that there are other things. Uh, first, there's the general category of trans-Neptunian objects, such as uh, the dwarf planet Eris. Uh, between uh, 37.9 and 97.6 astronomical units away from the sun. It's actually larger than Pluto by mass, though a little smaller by volume. Hmm. Oh, and just uh, quickly, an astronomical unit is the distance between the Earth and the sun. Correct, yeah. So Earth is 1 AU yeah. from the sun, uh, et cetera. So 97 AU is is way out there. It's way out there, yeah. Other dwarf planets include uh, um, Ceres, um, uh, Hamiya, and uh, Makamaki. And then consider the sednoids. This is where it really begins to get weird. Mm-hmm. These are trans-Neptunian objects with a uh, perihelion. Again, this is a point of least distance from the sun of at least 50 AU. So at their closest to the sun, they are still beyond the Kuiper belt, which lies 30 to 50 AU from the sun. This is an asteroid belt-like scattering of leftover debris. Mm-hmm. And all three known, you know, verified Sednoids have really cool names. Uh-huh. First of all, there's Sedna, discovered in 2003, named for an Inuit sea goddess. And that's where we get Sednoids because when we discovered earlier, it became a classification. Okay. And then there's 2012 VP113, uh, a.k.a. Biden, <laughs> discovered in 2012 and named for then Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden. So, he, wow. And then... <laughs> I wonder who is the person who has the most Onion articles written about them who also has an asteroid named about them. Not, <laughs> not an asteroid, an object in space named after them. Is it Biden? It might be Biden. Uh, and then uh, uh, the third one of note here discovered in 2015 is TG387. The TG stands for the goblin. The goblin? Yeah. The cheddar goblin? No, just the goblin. I mean, if it's cheddar or not, it's too far away. It might be Munster. So Seddon is the largest. Uh, the goblin is furthest away. And all of them have really weird orbits. Uh, so their distance uh, from uh, the center of things from our sun uh, varies greatly. And if you look at a chart of their um, of their orbits, I, I really get the sense of imagine imagine a typical orbit that's just been stretched out like a rubber band. Yeah. Uh, so uh, pretty much all the planets, I think, have uh, have elliptical orbits. They're not perfectly circular, mm-hmm. but the inner planets, their orbits are pretty close to circular. You right. know? They're they're only a few percent off from being circular. But these orbits are just massively off from being circular. They are super stretched out ovals. And one of the weird things I notice in in at least one of the pictures you've got here early on, Robert, is that they almost kind of like 
look like their uh, their their perihelions are kind of aligned, almost in the same direction. I wonder why that might be. We'll come back. to Yeah, that. we'll come back because that's that definitely leads to a few different mysteries here. Uh, in addition to having just weird orbits, again, they are so far away from from the sun. Uh, certainly, when you look at their their extremes, but even at their perihelions, are, are pretty extreme. The Goblin, for instance, has an estimated orbital period, what we can think of as a year, mm-hmm. of 32,117.29 Earth years. That's how long it takes for for uh, the goblin to go around the sun. And to put that uh, in context, a year on Pluto is 248 Earth years. That's how long it takes Pluto to go around the sun. And this thing is that much further away. Wow. The goblin's distance from the sun ranges from 65.1 AU to 1,955 AU. Wow. That is crazy far away. Yeah. And there are additional sednoid candidates and suspected uh, to be many more. We're talking 80 to 90 of these uh, critters. And uh, their distant and weird orbits can't be fully explained by the influences of known solar system objects either. Hmm. So for starters, they're too far from the sun to be uh, influenced by the gas giants. Okay. And they're too close to the sun to be influenced by other distant stars. Hmm. So something else is influencing them, but what? So there are a few reasonable candidates to consider here. Uh, The big one, the main one that we're most interested here with is uh, that there might be an undiscovered giant planet comparable to Uranus or Neptune still orbiting our sun somewhere out there in the dark. So there could maybe be a planet X after all. Exactly. Another idea is that a lost giant planet was ejected from our solar system uh, a long time ago, disrupting orbits on its way out. Uh, of our solar system. So that would that would explain why they all seem sort of skewed in the same direction because some uh, like a, a, a massive planetary object just came ripping through, pulling everybody uh, out of place. Okay. And then uh, a final uh, um, reasonable theory is that back in the stellar nursery days of our solar system, the sun's fellow proto-suns nudged everything out of whack. Okay. So it could be sort of a relic of something that happened in the past, kind of like the planet being ejected or something moving by. So if I can come back to Pluto for a second, I hope that, for one thing, the idea of the sednoids makes everyone feel better about losing or potentially losing Pluto as a full-fledged planet. Because ultimately, wouldn't you rather just drop Pluto from the list? Uh, as opposed to just adding all these other additional things. Like, no, you don't actually want to memorize a bunch of sednoids. Um, so Also, you didn't lose Pluto. No, it's Pluto's still, still there. It's still it's still a dwarf planet. You can still include it on the list. Like, uh, people get way people get people like to get bent out of shape over this when there's really nothing to get bent out of shape over. There's a reason Pluto is not considered a planet. It's in order to make it consistent with the definition of a planet that we use for all the other planets, mm-hmm. and that means that planets have to uh, dominate their orbital area. They have to gravitationally dominate their orbital area, and Pluto does not. Right. And if you just decide, nope, we're going to count Pluto, then you you have to be open to letting other things join the list as well. Yeah. Various dwarf planets and whatnot. So trust us, this is the best way. This is the best approach forward. Um, but again, this comes back to the question, all right, if there is, uh, let's, just, let's assume that that first theory is correct. If there is a giant planet out there in our solar system uh, and, it's, uh, it's, uh, and it's monkeying with the, uh, the orbits of these sednoids, then why don't we know about it for sure? Why amid all these, you know, the, the continual classification of exoplanets, uh, things as far away as Sweeps 11, which is 27,710 light 
years away. Why would we miss something so relatively close to home? All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come right back, we will explore more about the possibility of Planet Nine, a.k.a. Planet X. A.k.a. Planet Ten, but actually it's Planet Nine. A.k.a. Planet DMX. (laughs) All right, we're back. Robert, wasn't there an X-themed wrestler, or was he not really X-themed? I'm thinking of of, – he had an X in his name. Well, there was was an X-Pac wrestler, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sean Waltman. Yeah, he's still around. Uh, I believe there was a luchador, Doctor X. Yeah, because uh, you know the X. X looks so good on a mask. You've got to you got to roll that out eventually. It's the coolest letter, I guess. So X Pac is not like X themed, then. No, not really. No, nor does he have any relation to Planet X. So we're full on talking about Planet X now. Though this is confusing because yeah, you mentioned that Planet X X is the Roman numeral for ten, but this wouldn't be the tenth planet. This would be the ninth planet. It would be the planet after the eighth planet, Neptune. Right. Um, so it would really be Planet Nine. And when actual astronomers and astrophysicists these days talk about this planet, they don't usually call it Planet X. They call it Planet Nine. That's especially uh, necessary, I think, because the internet is just overflowing with Planet X conspiracy theories that I don't think we need to get into today. But man, I, I if you just do a – I don't know if I recommend this. There, do a YouTube search for Planet X and there is some apocalyptic uh, bonkers nonsense out there. I think it's all about how Planet X is coming to get us. Ah, well, you know, oh yeah, we're like you said, we're not going to really get into that today. But the the the, the great thing is that all of the uh, the actual scientific ideas concerning a potential Planet Nine are far more interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. So, uh, so one of the things that we should mention is that crucial for the demotion of Pluto was a Caltech researcher named Mike E. Brown, uh, a colleague of a, a another astronomer named Constantine Batygin. And for several years now, these astronomers, uh, Constantine Batygin and Mike Brown, have been talking about the possibility that they they suspect there is an object out there beyond Neptune, out there in the dark, shepherding the trans-Neptunian objects we've been talking about so that they are aligned in roughly the same direction. And they're aligned across multiple axes, by the way. So that's kind of interesting. Like if you look at all of their orbits from the North Pole looking down, they're all lined up in this one weird direction as if something's pulling them all in the same place. Ooh, a giant blind shepherd in the darkness? Yeah. Uh, what was the name of the Cyclops in the Odyssey? And does he have a, an, a, an, an astronomical body named after him? Probably so. But he's probably already taken. Polyphemus. Ah, I don't know. Is Polyphemus up for grabs? I don't know of anything called Polyphemus. Huh. I All just, right. Okay. I just did a Google search, and uh, the only thing that came up was that somebody wanted to name a moon of Neptune Polyphemus, but I don't think they did. All right. Well, well, maybe we can keep that one clear just in case, because I think that would be that would be a really awesome name for, for one of these planets, if I can have any say so. So when the aliens from that planet contact us and they say, help, someone's attacking me, and we radio back and say, who's attacking me? And they say, no one is attacking me. You can know they've been tricked by a cosmic Odysseus ah, who told them his name was no one. Space Odysseus is the worst. Such a trickster. All right. Well, I've derailed us a little bit here. Let's get back to this idea of Planet Nine, the blind, a, a potential blind shepherd of, the, of these distant objects. All right, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll bring it back. So one thing I should mention is that I actually listened to an interesting interview with the Caltech astronomer and uh, professor of planetary sciences, Konstantin Batygin. And and, and so this this shed some light on what he was thinking. Essentially – Konstantin Batygin and uh, and Mike E. Brown have been doing research to show – 
there is pos- there is a way of explaining some of the strange coincidences that we see in the structure of the outer solar system, in the structure of these uh, like sedenoids, Kuiper belt objects, these objects that are way out there. Then when we track their orbits, they seem to line up in this bizarre way where they're all sort of pointing in the same direction at one end. At their perihelion, they're all like – it's like they're, they're just lining up. And then also a strange thing is that they're not only lining up in that dimension but if you like look directly at the solar plane instead of down on it, they're all sort of elevated. They're mm-hmm. tipped up across the solar plane in a fairly consistent or at least close to consistent way. And that's really odd. Uh, like Batygin talks about how that really wouldn't be something you'd expect to see just by chance. So the idea here is that what if something has pushed them there? It's like, why are all the sheep standing in this area? Well, maybe it's because uh, the, the, the shepherd dog or the wolf is standing over here. Right. And so the problem is we don't know exactly where to look for this object if it is out there. So uh, Leverrier could say, hey, you know, I think I know where Neptune is. I'm going to give you within one degree of, of where to look. And, of course, when they looked for it, they found it with the telescope. You can't quite do the same thing with this planet 9 because even the people who think it exists, they're inferring it from its influence on uh, objects who have orbital periods of like 10,000 years or something. So it takes them so long to go around. So we are sort of lacking in data to, to get the full arc to pinpoint exactly where the planet would be to cause what we see. But Konstantin Batygin thinks that right now the best uh, place to look for this planet is probably at an average distance of somewhere around 500 astronomical units. Oh, wow, so, it's out there. Yeah, 500 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. And so for comparison, you know, Earth is 1, Mars is 1.5 AU, Jupiter is 5.2, Neptune is about 30 AU, so that's starting to get way out there. But the distance from Neptune to the ninth planet would be gigantic. It would be many times the distance from the sun to Neptune. So it's way, way out there in the dark. Uh, The best estimates say that it would probably have a roughly 10,000-year orbit. And also it would probably have a very elliptical orbit compared to the inner planets. Like the inner planets are elliptical, but they're pretty close to circular. Mm -hmm. This planet would be more like these these objects we've been talking about, these Kuiper Belt objects and sedenoids that have these long ovals. Right, but not quite as long as the sedenoid. No, longer, but not quite that long. Right. So we've got good reasons to think that there's something out there with mass. There, there could be another large planet out there with mass that's causing these objects that we can see to behave in the way they do. But we don't know much about this object itself, right? Because all, all we have to go on is what its mass would have to be and roughly what its orbit is to cause the effects we're seeing. We can't – we haven't been able to look at it. We don't know exactly for sure what it would be made of, exactly how big it would be. Um, the, the estimates – I've seen tend to think that it's going to be bigger than Earth, but it would be sort of like a an icy super Earth with mm-hmm. a uh, with an atmosphere kind of like the gas giants and uh, an upper atmosphere like Neptune or something, uh, but with an icy core, maybe roughly five Earth masses. I've also seen an older estimate that was uh, more like roughly ten Earth masses. I don't know if it's been. Uh, if those represent different points of view or if it's been scaled down since then. But the more recent one I saw from Batygin was five Earth masses. But as for the the makeup, like the icy core with the atmosphere on the outside, that's just something we have to guess. We don't know for sure. And so uh, with an object with an orbit this long, way out there in the dark, obviously it 
probably would be possible for us to see it with our telescopes if we know where to look and what to look for. But it's not going to be something that just shows up in an obvious way. It's going to take mm -hmm. like difficult analysis of uh, doing, you know, comparing uh, photos of the night sky with deep detail across different nights to see what moves. And part of the problem is there's a lot of stuff out there. A right. lot of things move. And so like if you take a super high-res photograph with great magnification of a patch of the sky across a few different nights and then see what moves there, you might get tons of hits, maybe thousands of hits. And then you got to look at those and say, okay, is this a new, uh, is this a uh, Kuiper Belt object we know about? Is this a main belt asteroid we know about? Is this a new Kuiper Belt or main belt object uh, that we d that we didn't know about? Or is this maybe a planet that we should be looking for? Right, because I mean, it's, you see this happen from time to time where it's, they'll think a new object has been discovered, but it's actually an object that has already been charted. So there's duplication that can take place. Yeah, and so uh, one of the things that we can do to help figure out where we should look is to rule out certain areas of the sky. And that's something that Batygin has uh, been talking about doing is you can say, okay, there's no point in looking for the planet here. Mm -hmm. We know it wouldn't be here. There's no point looking for it here. We know it wouldn't be here. And then also you can use other data to infer places where it probably shouldn't be. For example, we know that it's uh, probably not in, in a certain sector because if it were, it may – probably would have affected the movements in a detectable way of the Cassini spacecraft when Cassini was in orbit around Saturn. Right. So that tells us probably it's not really close to its perihelion right now, right? It's not close enough to be having an, an effect on the inner planets. It's probably somewhere a little bit further out if it exists. So to come back to my my beach house uh, okay. uh, metaphor from earlier, uh, it's, it's like you, they're the rooms that you can see. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can look to them from where you are and see there is no mystery stranger in that room. There are rooms where you would be able to detect. Maybe there's a, you know, they're, they're, you're right beneath it and you would be able to hear them, surely, if they were creaking around up there. But there are other rooms that you just you don't know at this point. Yeah. And so the, the question of whether there is actually a Planet Nine out there, it does remain unsolved, though uh, Constantine Batygin seems very confident. And in, in the interview I listened to, you know, uh, the host asked him, uh, how confident are you that this thing is out there? And he's like, well, I used to say I was six trillion percent confident. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then he said, actually, you can calculate a good confidence interval by saying, what's the probability as far as we know, that all of these uh, Kuiper Belt objects would have their orbits line up the same way like this by chance without some big massive object out there to shepherd them into these orbits. And according to him, the chance of this happening by coincidence is 0.2 percent. So by subtraction, he says he's 99.8 percent confident that Planet Nine exists. So th that's very confident. I'm sure plenty of other astronomers wouldn't be that level of confident. But it's awe-inspiring to even think about the possibility that there's this, this, this additional planet out there in our own solar system, in our own you know, relatively local neck of the, the cosmic woods. And we just merely suspect that it's there, that it's out there roaming uh, uh, through the darkness. Well, I mean, this is, a, this is a great sort of science hunt 
game to play, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you have to use the laws of physics as you know them and try to figure out what's another way we could get data that nobody's thought of before. And so, like the idea of using the the perturbations of the movement of a spacecraft that's that's a smart way to look for new data that might not have appeared to you otherwise. Um, and and so this is really cool, but at the same time, I'm sure really frustrating, especially if you're like pretty confident that you think, yeah, we, we really know it's probably got to be out there uh, because nobody's discovered a planet in the solar system, arguably since either Clyde Tombow in the 1930s or since uh, Leverrier and, uh, and uh, McAdams, or I think McAdams was the other guy who discovered it in the 1840s. I mean, that's been a long time. Yeah, totally, because, again, we've all grown up with this map of the solar system in our, our heads, and uh, and you kind of – I don't, I don't remember being taught, hey, this is all subject to change, uh, <laughs> but, but clearly it is. Well, you would think that if there is a Planet Nine out there to be discovered, it's also probably going to be the last one we're going to discover because there's there's only a limited range of space where planets could actually be without a, without violating what else we know about space, right? It couldn't be closer than where we're thinking this planet is because mm-hmm. otherwise we it would interfere with the inner planets and we would know about it. Right. Uh, it couldn't really be farther away than where we're thinking this thing is or else it probably would have been like stripped away by a passing star as we move through the galaxy. Right, because it still needs to be under the 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 power of our sun, within the the, the thrall of our sun yeah. uh, to be considered part of our solar system. I mean, that's the whole point. Yeah, so there's not like opportunities to just discover unlimited more planets in the solar system. The solar mm-hmm. system doesn't go on forever. Eventually, the domain of gravitational dominance of our sun ends and other stars become more powerful in their in their gravitational influence. So, so there's only so much space where there could be more planets. And it looks like if we discover one more planet out there, that's, that's probably about it. I don't know. Maybe there could be one more. But it's not like, you know, that we're going to find 10 more planets. Yeah. And certainly nothing, you know, large like that. Uh, so... Yeah, it's a tantalizing mystery. I love the idea that there are still mysteries about our solar system, not yeah. just space in general, but local mysteries, mysteries inside the house. Right, right. And, of course, that's not to gloss over the, the many um, you know, unsolved problems related to each individual planet. I mean, yeah. just, just, every, every, just about every object in our solar system, there's something about it we're still trying to figure out. And, uh, and, and that's just dealing with the problems that we know about. That's the, the unknowns that we're aware of. Personally, I'm excited. I, I hope they discover another planet in our lifetime. That would be really cool. That would. That would be cool. And it seems like now there's – I don't – it's not a lock. I wouldn't – I don't know if I'd go to 99.8 percent, but it seems like there's pretty good evidence. Yeah. And then, and then what will we name it? I like your Polyphemus idea, the blind shepherd out there. Yeah. yeah. It's a good name. Yeah. Assuming uh, nothing else has, uh, has, has snagged it already. Yeah. And assuming that it doesn't uh, attempt a space Odysseus to come along and screw everything up. <laughs> That's true. All right. Well, we're going to close out uh, this episode. Uh, you know, we, we didn't even get into any uh, examples from science fiction, though I do believe in Doctor Who, the Cybermen homeworld of Mondas 
is both a ninth planet uh, as well as a former counter-Earth. I oh, could, it's two at once. Yeah, I think it's two at once. Uh, I, 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 I could have that wrong. So I'd love to hear from uh, from our Who fans out there. I know we have some Who listeners uh, out there uh, listening to the show. Maybe you can set us right on this. Plus, there have to be there have to be plenty of other science fiction properties that have have utilized this idea of a mysterious ninth or tenth planet uh, out there in our solar system. Robert, I think they're called Hoovioids. Hoovioids, okay. Yeah. Well, Hoovioids well, write in about it. Uh, and everybody else, feel free to write in as well. Uh, we're going to uh, hopefully come back with more episodes in this series because there are additional phantom planets, phantom objects uh, that that line up under the mission statement of, of these episodes. So uh, you know, look forward to that in the future. And in the meantime, if you want to check out old episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where you'll find all of them. You'll find links out to our social media accounts. Uh, you can go and follow us there. Uh, likewise, there's a, a little merchandise, a little store button at the top of the page. You can go uh, pick up a T-shirt or a sticker with our logo or some sort of design uh, that's related to a past episode. Uh, it's a cool way to support the show, but the absolute best way to support the show is to tell people about it and to rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you've subscribed. And if you haven't already, check out our other show, Invention. It's an invention-by-invention invention exploration of human techno history. Absolutely. Are you not listening to Invention yet? If you like this show, you'll probably like that one too. So we really advise you go check it out. Subscribe. Anyway, huge thanks to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, to suggest a name for Planet Nine, or just to say hello, or to let us know you're a Hoovioid, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.